0: It's Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ again. I am so excited that you've received this lesson. This is the third in a series that we at the Franklin Church of Christ had presented in our June 2005 Vacation Bible School. Greg Gwynn, a gospel preacher who, at the time these lessons were preached, lived in Columbia, Tennessee, came and taught our adult class in this Vacation Bible School series. The entire series deals with why we believe. This lesson is entitled Why We Believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Can we really trust that Bible? How do we know that it really came from God? There really is a great deal of evidence, and Brother Gwen shares it with us in this lesson. So pull out your Bible and follow along as we learn why we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God.
1: I'm not talking about being ready to hear another sermon. I'm talking about being ready in the fashion that 1 Peter 3, and verse 15 says that we're supposed to be ready to give an answer to every man that asks the reason of the hope that is in us. And the idea, as we've been saying each night, is to be prepared to make a defense. In other words, you believe this, why do you believe it? Give a reason for your belief. Be able to explain the proof and evidence that what you believe is true. I think that each of us as Christians should be able to do that. In fact, each of us has an obligation to be able to do that. And so the studies that we're engaged in this week, I hope, will help us in that direction. Uh, For those of us who are Christians, then that is the purpose of our studying together this week, to fortify our faith and help us be better prepared. But it may be that there's someone uh, with us tonight, or maybe you've been here some of the other lessons as well. Maybe you're not at the point of faith yet. And if that's the case, we're really excited that you would come and consider these things with us because we really believe that if you will honestly and carefully examine the evidence, the proof is there that convinces us to believe in God, to believe that He created the world, then tonight we want, to, we want to talk about the inspired Word of God. Our statement tonight is, I believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. The first question would be, is do you believe that? And my guess is that the vast majority of us assembled here tonight likely do believe that. But having said that much, we would ask another question. Not only do you believe it, but... What do you mean by inspired? What do you mean when you say, I believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Even among religious people, there's a wide variety of ideas about what the inspired Word implies. Some people would say that The Bible is inspired in the sense that an artist or a poet might be inspired. You know, maybe uh, an artist is looking out on the evening sunset and the sky is just beautiful and the landscape just frames it perfectly and, and he feels inspired to paint a picture. You know, he's moved by that. Some people have that idea about the Bible. It's a good book. It's an inspired book in the sense that the men who wrote it really were moved and motivated and had a deep passion about what they were writing and that they were inspired in that sense. Now, I don't think that's what we mean, and I don't think that's what the Bible says when it talks about it being the inspired Word of God. Other people might imagine that inspiration means that as the Bible was being written, God gave the various men who took part in that writing, He gave them the basic ideas to write about he gave them the the, sort of the principles or the main themes that he wanted to be discussed. And then he left it up to them to develop those themes and to discuss those principles with their own thoughts and their own words. Now, actually, a Gallup poll that was reported in Reader's Digest a while back said that 46% of people who were surveyed believed that was what Bible inspiration was. In other words, that God sort of inspired the the main thoughts of the Bible, and then mortal men put it down in their own words. Now, think about the problem with that view. If, that's the, if that is the view you have of Bible inspiration, then you would say that the, the, the big, broad themes of the Bible, like love and goodwill, those kind of things are surely what God wants us to know. But you can't come down hard on any specific statement You can't go to any particular verse and argue hard for a a particular doctrinal matter because that may have been just the wording chosen by a fallible man as he attempted to write about the inspired themes that God told him to write about. And so I would suggest to you that that's not an adequate view of inspiration either. And so those kinds of definitions really fail to convey the true concept. In our study tonight... Our goal is to get a greater appreciation for what God's Word really is, that it is the complete and flawless guide for our lives. We want to talk about Bible inspiration tonight. We're glad that you've chosen to be here and be a part of it. I hope that as we study along, uh, we're able to thoroughly explain the things that we're talking about. But it may be that there's some questions in your mind. And if afterwards you have some questions, Feel free to ask them. I'd be glad to study with you or talk with you at length. I know Edwin Wood and others as well, likely. But we'd be open to your questions. We're very glad that you've chosen to be a part of this study tonight. Let's talk about what the Bible says about itself. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16, it says, "...all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's powerful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect." Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I believe that Paul here, the Apostle Paul, has really given a great definition of inspiration. Notice he talked about all Scripture. And we could literally translate that as everything written. So, when he talks about the Scripture, he's talking about the things that have been written. And he says the things written are given by inspiration of God. Literally, by inspiration of God means God breathes. And so, if you were going to put a literal translation on that expression, you could say everything written is God-breathed. Now, what sense do you make of that? What does that mean, anyway? Well, here's the notion of it. When we speak, in order to form words and to make sounds, it's necessary for us to expel air out of our lungs. And as the air is forced out of our lungs, uh, through our voice box and across the roof of our mouth and tongue and teeth and lips, we're able to shape and form that air as it comes out of our lungs to make sounds, to speak. As sort of an experiment sometimes you might hold your hand in front of your face as you're speaking and you can actually feel the air hitting your hand as it comes out of your mouth. In order to speak, we must breathe out. We must force air out of our lungs in order to make the sound. And so that's what this Bible verse is saying about the Scriptures. The things that are written have been breathed out or actually spoken by God. When we read the Scriptures, we're reading the very Word of God. Homer Haley said that verbal inspiration of the Scriptures is what I believe. I mean by this that when prophets of the Old Covenant or apostles of the New spoke or wrote, that they spoke or wrote by inspiration, God giving them the idea and selecting and choosing from their vocabulary the words that they were to use in making the idea known. I simply affirm that the original manuscripts were spoken and written by men as they were guided by the Holy Spirit, both in thought and in words which the thoughts were made known. Now, I want you to especially notice this part of this phrase in Haley's explanation. He said, God gave them the idea, and then He selected and chose from their vocabulary the words that they were to use in making the idea known. As we read the Bible, it's easy enough to detect various writing styles of the different authors. Uh, For instance, you can pretty well identify with Paul. He wrote many of the epistles in the New Testament, and, and we can sort of pick up on his writing style. The Apostle John had his unique style. What Haley is explaining here is that the Almighty God was capable of giving those men the ideas that He wanted them to write about, but then also the, God had the power to choose from their vocabularies and from their own experiences how He wanted them to convey those ideas to mankind. And the end result is that not only are the ideas of the Scripture inspired by God, but the very words in which they are expressed are given by God. Let's notice what the Bible has to say about itself. Let's look first of all at some Old Testament passages. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, God said to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And notice God was promising the sending of a prophet, but he said, I will put my ideas in his head. No. He said, I will put my words in his mouth. And so the idea of inspiration was the promise that God's very words would be in the mouth of his prophets. He said, my words, which he shall speak. When he speaks, he'll be speaking. My words. That was the promise that God gave. In 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 2, David said, The Lord God spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. Notice, not His thoughts in my head, but His word was in my tongue. And then in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 9, the prophet said, The Lord put forth His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. So, again, in these Old Testament passages, you get that idea. And the very first thing that we want to stress when we're talking about the Bible and the inspiration of the Bible is that the very words are the words that God wanted us to have. Now, understand, of course, I think it's a given and everybody understands, that the Bible, Old or New Testament, was not originally given in the English language. And so when we read our English Bibles, we're reading translations of the original languages, but in those original languages, of which we have reliable translations, in those original languages, when God when God moved the inspired men to speak and write, they were using the exact words that God wanted uh, in His message. The New Testament suggests actually the very same thing. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now here Jesus was talking about the Old Testament. He was talking about that He had come to fulfill the Old Testament. Not to destroy it, but rather to fulfill it. But notice He says, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass, till, uh, pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now, We understand that when Jesus made reference to the jot and the tittle, he was talking about the smallest strokes of the pen that were used in writing the Hebrew alphabet. Here's a graphics which shows some Hebrew writing. The Hebrew language and the written form of it in particular is very difficult and very intricate. One time I signed up to take a Hebrew class at a a university near where I live. Uh, I dropped out after two weeks. Uh, while I could still get some of my money back because I was having trouble even mastering the alphabet. and I didn't know how I would master the rest of it if I couldn't learn the alphabet. And even the letters of the Hebrew uh, language in the written form, very difficult, and some letters are distinguished from others only by the slightest little stroke of the pen, the jot or the tittle. Well, Jesus said that the jot and the tittle, the smallest strokes of the pen, were in that Old Testament Scripture because God wanted them to be there. You get the idea, Jesus was not suggesting that the Old Testament was inspired just in its broad general themes, but actually the slightest stroke of the pen was there because God wanted it to be there. That's how completely and thoroughly the Bible is inspired by God. In Matthew chapter twenty-two, and verses thirty-one and thirty-two, Jesus was making a point to the Sadducees. You remember there was a particular sect of the Jews known as the Sadducees who doubted and were skeptical and simply did not believe that there was life beyond the grave. And so Jesus made an argument to them to prove that there was life beyond the grave. He said, As touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? Say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, Jesus was making an argument here based upon the present tense verb, I am. This quote was actually a quote which God made to Moses at the burning bush. When God said that to Moses at the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been physically dead for hundreds of years. And so these men were physically dead, and and if death ends all things... God would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But instead, He said, I am, present tense, right now, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus was able to make an argument based upon the verb tense in that statement from God. Do you see that? And so Jesus believed that the, the Scriptures were so thoroughly inspired that he, he could make a conclusive and compelling argument based upon the verb tense that Jesus chose to use, or rather, God used and Jesus quoted when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. That's, again, how thoroughly the Scriptures are inspired. And uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, the promise that Jesus made to His disciples... When they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Notice, Jesus says, when you speak, it will be the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. In First Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Here, Paul makes a pretty, I think, interesting argument. He said, a man can't know what's in another man's mind unless that man chooses to tell him. Now, that's true, isn't it? You can't tell what I'm thinking. I can't tell what you're thinking unless I tell you so. Now, sometimes people think they can read minds. Sometimes my wife thinks she can read my mind, but she can't always do that very successfully. The only way you can really know what I'm thinking is if I choose to verbalize that to you, right? And that's the only way I can tell what you're thinking if you verbalize that to me. And Paul's argument here is that we can't know the mind of God unless God chooses to tell us what's on His mind. Thankfully, he has chosen to tell us, and the Holy Spirit inspired men, and they spoke not in the wisdom which man, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches. But notice there, he says, in the very words which the Holy Ghost teaches, that's how those inspired men spoke. Again, we're just. Uh, multiplying the verses that make that claim in church. Fine. just one more, First Thessalonians chapter two verse thirteen. For this cause also thank we God, without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it as not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Paul said that what they spoke and taught was not the word of men, but it was the very Word of God. And so the Bible makes the claim for itself that it is the inspired Word of God. Now that's the Bible claim. But that doesn't prove, it. that doesn't necessarily prove it to be so. That's the Bible claim. You know, it, it's possible to claim anything. You, know. you can make wild, outrageous claims. For instance, uh, you might guess that in, in some time past I played a bit of basketball. Uh, and, and I might tell you tonight that I'm, probably the best basketball player that ever lived. And that in a one-on-one with Michael Jordan, he wouldn't have a chance. I'd beat him hands down. Somebody said, yeah. Well, I could claim that, couldn't I? But if I made such an outrageous claim as that, you would expect me to step up and provide some proof. Now, that's where I fail here. I couldn't prove that. I can claim it, but I can't prove it. Well, the Bible can claim that it's from God, but that doesn't prove that it is. All that we have done so far is really look at what the Bible claims for itself. Now, is the proof there? Can it be proved that the Bible is word for word from God? Well, I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. Let's look at some of that proof. First of all, let's talk about the unity uh, and and the harmony that exists in the Scriptures. When we think about the Bible, we realize that it is a book that was written by approximately 40 different human writers. Or sometimes I think it's better to say that the Bible was produced by 40 different or thereabouts. There's a couple of books we're not exactly sure who the authors are, so we don't can't say with absolute certainly. But nearly or approximately 40 different human penmen were used by God to write down what He wanted them to convey to mankind. Now, among those 40 different men... They, they lived over a period of about 1,500 years. The oldest parts of our Bible, when you pick up your Bible, Old and New Testament, the oldest parts of that Bible were written about 1,500 years before Christ or about 3,500 years ago those oldest parts of the Old Testament were written. And then, of course, the, the newest parts of our Bible are nearly 2,000 years old, written in the first century A.D. So there was a, a period of time there, a time span of about 1,500 years, when these 40 different writers were doing their work. What that means, obviously, is that not all of those men knew one another or had, even had the ability to know one another. They lived in different times. Think about that. That's a huge span of time, really, to stop to consider it. For instance, think about the fact that we're living here in the year... 2005. So 1,500 years ago would have been the year 505. That's a long time ago, right? And if you think about somebody who lived way back then, their thoughts, their customs, the things that served as norms and standards for them would likely be a lot different than ours. So we're talking about men who lived over this long expanse of time, They didn't know one another, obviously. They weren't able to sit around a conference table and confer about the things that they were going to write about in their part of the Bible. They lived in different times, and also they lived in different places. Uh, The Bible was written by men who lived in, in varying geographical locations. Moses wrote from the Sinai Peninsula, Daniel from Babylon, Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem, and Paul wrote from a Roman prison. They wrote from different places. They lived in different times. They had a variety of different backgrounds. Moses was reared in Egypt as the grandson of the king. David himself was a king. But Amos was a simple herdsman. Daniel was a statesman in Babylon. Ezekiel was a priest. Luke was a doctor. Matthew was a tax collector. And on and on we go. When you realize that these men came from really a very wide and different sort of background uh, that they brought to their jobs, and add to that, we could add that they didn't even all speak the same languages. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew with just a bit of Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Koine Greek. So put that all together. Forty men who didn't even live in the same place or time. Not all of them. Some of them would have known one another, but the majority of them did not know one another. They wrote... From different locations, using different languages, they came from different backgrounds. But I tell you what's really amazing about it is that when you take the writings of all those men and you put it together in one book that we call the Bible, you find out that there's a perfect harmony there, there's no contradiction. You can't find any flaw. You can't find where one man said one thing and another man, writing later or at different times, wrote something that contradicted with. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Now, mind you that through the centuries, skeptics and doubters have done their very best to try to prove that the Bible contradicts itself. They have never been able to do so. Although they try and continue to try to come up with contradictions in the Bible, they simply are not there. Every supposed or claimed contradiction in the Bible can be explained. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Now, i want to tell you something. That's really amazing. Uh, I want you to really dwell on that for a minute. It is an amazing thing that those 40 men, could, you could compile their writings together, no contradictions. Let me show you, uh, or, or tell you at least about an, uh, uh, an example that illustrates how amazing that is. When I was in high school, Uh my U.S. history teacher was a very interesting sort of fellow. He was the football and wrestling coach as well, so that might give you an idea about the kind of guy he was. We were in class one day, and class had just gotten underway. And after about five minutes of the class period, the door burst open, and a man ran in, yelled the teacher's name, and shot him with a gun. He fell out on the floor. The man turned and ran away. Now, mind you, no one would even think about conducting an experiment like this in the modern day age of school shootings and everything, but that was this was long before those sort of considerations. The teacher lay there on the floor. We were all just dumbfounded. No one even got up. No one tried to stop the assailant. We just stood there in stunned silence. We sat there, rather, in stunned silence. After about ten seconds, Mr. Goins jumped up from the floor and without any explanation, he said, take a blank paper and a pencil and write down everything you just saw and heard in the most detail that you possibly can. He gave us just a couple of minutes to write down our first-hand account of what we had just seen and heard. And then he collected those papers. Well, it was almost comical as he began to read the different papers. There were about 30 of us in that class. And he began to read those descriptions of what we had just seen. You know what was amazing? There wasn't a single one of them that agreed with another one. We all differed with one another. Each of us saw something different. We heard something different. And then what was really amazing is he asked the fellow to come back in who had actually shot him with a starter's pistol. And what was actually comical about it was that none of us had accurately described the fella concerning what he wore and what he said. Here were 30 people who just moments before, in the same room, same place, same time, had seen one event, and we could not write about it in such a fashion to keep from contradicting one another. Well, take that example and apply it to the Bible writers. Here were 40 men, writing over a long period of time, from different places and times, different languages, different backgrounds. How likely do you think it would be that on their own, they could write about anything. And when you put their writings together, they harmonize with one another. I'm telling you, that just could not be so. That just would not happen. And yet it did happen. What's the explanation? Well, the explanation can only be, I think, that God was guiding the process. That God was giving them the very words He wanted them to use to make His will, make his will known to man. To let us know what was in His mind. That's the process of inspiration. And so that perfect harmony and unity of the Scriptures is, a, I think, a positive or powerful proof that God was guiding the process, that God was inspiring His Word. We might also talk about the flawless accuracy of the Bible. The Bible is accurate in everything that it describes. For instance, when the Bible makes historical or geographical references, it is always accurate. When the Bible makes a reference to things that happened, events that historically occurred, always, as, as there has been research and there, as there have been archaeological discoveries and so forth, the Bible has been proven to be historically accurate in every particular. Now, of course, that's what you would believe, right? If God is the, the one behind the process, God is all-knowing and is all-powerful, then you would expect that the inspired men would write accurate history. They did. The Bible's not a general history book. It never was intended to be. It's the history of a specific group of people. But obviously, as those people lived their lives, they interacted with some others, and there's the the ability that we have to compare the historical notes of the Bible with other things that are known to have happened through time. The Bible is always historically accurate. When it makes reference to geographical details, as it sometimes does, it's not a geography book. But when it makes reference to geographical particulars, it's always accurate. That's what you would expect, of course, if God is the one who produced the Bible, and he did. Furthermore, the Bible is scientifically accurate. Um, The Bible is not a science book. It was never intended to be a science book. But when it makes references that later could be either confirmed or disproven by science, in every case, the Bible has made statements that are scientifically accurate. I noticed that one of the tracks that Edwin has on the table back there talks about some of the ancient and even superstitious views that men had in times past. Uh, take Take a very simple one, for instance. We understand that men at one time believed the earth was flat. Now, if men on their own had been writing the Bible, they would have written about a flat earth. And then, centuries later, when men found out that the earth is not actually flat, but it's round, the Bible would have been proven inaccurate. But the Bible never said the world was flat. The Bible didn't convey those superstitious ideas... Uh, as the men were writing. If they were writing on their own, they likely would have included those superstitious ideas, but they did not because God was guiding their hand. Uh, Here's one example. Um, The the hydrologic cycle, as it's called. Uh, The rivers run into the oceans. The water is evaporated back and returns to the land, and there's a cycle there that we understand now very well that men didn't always understand. Uh, actually, it, it, the volume of it is incredible. I was reading that the Mississippi River pumps more than six millions of gallons into the Gulf of Mexico every second. Isn't that amazing? 6 million, more than six million gallons per second are dumped into the Gulf of Mexico every second. Now, at that rate, why doesn't the Gulf of Mexico just fill up and overflow And the river run dry. Well, because we understand there's a cycle there. Men didn't always understand that. Certainly not in the days of Solomon did they understand it. But Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7, All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Until the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Well, that's true. That's an accurate statement, isn't it? Now, Solomon didn't understand it, and scientists of the day that he wrote didn't understand it. But he wrote a statement that later could be shown to be true scientifically, and that's the kind of thing that we're talking about when we talk about the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Again, the Bible not a science book; wasn't intended it to be. But when it speaks of such things, it's always been true, and, and it does not. I think probably the most amazing thing there is that it does not include the Bible does not include the superstitious views of the men of the age in which the Bible was written. If the Bible had been written purely as the product of men, those superstitious views would have been included, and they are not. And that's a sure sign that God was guiding the process. Let's talk about prophecy. Let's talk about the prophecies of the Bible as proof. You know, the word prophecy just suggests uh, a teaching or a telling. We most often... uh, connect the idea of foretelling future events when we think about prophecy. And certainly many Bible prophecies foretold future events. I I want to give you an example of one set of such prophecies concerning the city of Tyre. Ezekiel made some prophecies. Ezekiel wrote in 590 B.C. And he made some prophecies about the city of Tyre. The first prophecy was that many nations would attack the city of Tyre the first led by, the first by Babylon, led by the great king Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Ezekiel prophesied that in chapter 26, verses 3 through 7. Now, Ezekiel made a prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar was going to attack Tyre. Somebody said, Big deal. And Nebuchadnezzar was the guy who was beating up on everybody in that time. You wouldn't have had to have been a very shrewd observer of political events in order to guess that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the one who attacks Tyre. And he did. And uh, that was fulfilled in 572 B.C. So about 18 years later, the prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar would attack Tyre came true. But again, somebody say, that was not so. that's not so amazing. Anybody who was observing what was going on in the world of that day could have made that guess. So, okay, let's grant that. But that's not the only prophecy that Ezekiel made. He also predicted in chapter 29, verse 18, that Nebuchadnezzar would receive no spoil from the city. Well, now that's a an interesting prediction because we understand that when nations went to war back in those days, part of the reason why they did was so that they could spoil their enemies and take whatever wealth that the enemy had and make it their own. But Ezekiel prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar would not be able to do that, so that was an un, that was a rather unusual prediction. Well, again, this was fulfilled in 572 BC when. Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Tyre. It was a seacoast city. Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city. And while he had the city besieged, the people took their wealth and escaped to an offshore island uh, several hundred yards out from the shore. They took everything of worth and value and themselves. They escaped to that island. And when the city was taken, when the city fell, Nebuchadnezzar went in, there wasn't any spoil. There wasn't anything to take. Now, Ezekiel had made that prediction. Again, it was only 18 years beforehand, but he made that prediction. And amazingly, it came true. So, I said, well, that was, a, that was maybe just a good guess. Now, it's kind of interesting, but still, it might just have been an interesting guess. Well, if we haven't convinced you yet, let's make, it, let's make another obs- observation from Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 26, verses 4 and 12, that the dust of the city was going to be scraped and the area would be like the top of a rock and that the ruins of the city would be cast into the sea. Now, what about that? Why would a conquering army take the time to scrape the place clean like the top of a rock? Why would they go to all the work to throw the ruins of the city into the sea? Interestingly, this was not fulfilled when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Tyre. When when the city fell to Nebuchadnezzar's army in 572, the statement of of Ezekiel, the city's going to be scraped, the ruins will be thrown in the city, that was not fulfilled then. So I said, ah, Ezekiel missed his guess. He'd been guessing all along. He missed his guess. That was not fulfilled. Well, wait a minute. It actually was fulfilled in 332 B.C. when Alexander the Great's army came to the same location. The ruins of the ancient city were still there. Nebuchadnezzar's army scraped the ground clear through the ruins of the city into the sea, built a causeway from the mainland to the island, wherein he conquered the people and took their wealth. But in order to get there, he fulfilled the prophecy of Ezekiel, scraping the area clean like the top of a rock, throwing the ruins of the city into the sea. And the prophecy of Ezekiel was fulfilled uh, more than 250 years after he had made that prediction. Now, again, we could simply ask the question, and that's just one example of Bible prophecy. There are hundreds of such examples of Bible prophecy that were fulfilled. Someone could argue, how did Ezekiel know that? How could a man write about such a thing and do so in such incredible detail?
0: And I believe that the
1: only explanation, the only answer is because God was guiding him in that process. God guided the prophets, And so, again, remember what we were saying earlier. It's easy enough to claim anything. Clearly, the Bible claims it's from God. Not just in thought or idea, but in actual word. The Bible claims to be from God. That's the claim. What about the proof? Well, there's actually just really powerful, compelling proof that the Bible is what it claims to be a book from God. We talk about that unity and harmony, those 40 different writers, that's pretty amazing. We talk about the flawless accuracy of the Bible in regards to things that men could not have known on their own in the days in which they wrote those things, but they wrote accurately. And then when we... Think about prophecy, and we really just touched the hem of the garment when it comes to the study of prophecy and the fulfillments of prophecy. It's really amazing proof that the Bible is from God. Now, having made those points, we could ask a follow-up question. Okay, so the Bible is, or maybe we could say the Bible was the inspired Word of God. That when those books were originally written, They were written under the influence of the Holy Spirit, God giving them in the very words to write. But you know, that was a really long time ago. We said earlier that the oldest parts of the Bible are about 3,500 years old. The newest parts of the Bible are 2,000 years old. Do we have a reliable copy of the original? In other words, okay, so even if we granted that they were inspired originally, has that been carried over? Has it been preserved? Has it been protected for us? Well, that's a whole nother study in itself. There are many people who try to attack the Bible on that basis. We don't have time to go into great detail, but we could simply say that the answer to that question is a, is a powerful and overwhelming yes. We absolutely do have reliable copies of the original. In fact, there's no book of antiquity that has been conveyed with such accuracy. Not even close. I mean, no, nothing even holds a candle. To the Bible. There are thousands of manuscripts. Uh, we admit of course that there are no, none of the originals. In other words, you cannot go someplace in a museum and find the original epistle of Paul to the Romans. All those originals are what often referred to as the autographs. the original copies are lost to mankind. but we have reliable copies, There's thousands of manuscripts of the various books in the Bible, many of them dating back to very nearly the time in which they were originally written. And by comparing those thousands of manuscripts to one another, we can be absolutely certain that we have a reliable copy. Uh, Let me illustrate that to you this way. Let's say that I wrote a short little paragraph about something and I sent it to Edwin. And Edwin reads that and he says, Oh, I like that. I like what Greg said. I want some other people to read that. But he's not, he's not where he has uh, access to a, to a copy machine or anything like that. So he, he, he makes a handwritten copy of what I wrote. In fact, he makes three handwritten copies. Each of them quoting exactly what I wrote. And then he sends it to three others of you. So he got the original. He held on to the original. He made handwritten copies of that original and he passed it out to three others of you. Then, Edwin loses the original. uh, The dog ate it or something. He loses the original. Now, what about the other three of you? Could you be certain that your copy was true to the original? Well, some of us are probably not because the original has been lost. You can't compare it back to the original. Can you have any certainty, though, that your copy was like the original? Well, the answer to that is yes, right? One of you... Compare, you could take your copy and compare it to the other two that were made, and if all three are identical, you would say, well, there's a high probability that my copy is just like the original, right? If you had, you had one copy and there were two others, and you could compare the three, and they all were identical, you would say, well, I've, got, I've got pretty good confidence that my copy is accurate, wouldn't you? Now, what if you could multiply that by several thousands? What if you could take your original and instead of comparing it just to two others, what if you could compare it to 5,000 others? And they're all identical. Would you feel like you have confidence that your copy is accurate? Well, yeah, you'd be absolutely certain, wouldn't you? Well, that's what we can do with the Bible documents. We don't have the originals, but we got thousands of copies, many of them dating back into the immediate time in which the originals were written. And by comparing those all together we can have tremendous confidence that our Bibles today are just like the originals that were given so long ago. Now, that's a whole field of study. There are men who devote their entire lives to that sort of thing. But I simply want you to be able to say with confidence, yes, I believe that when I pick up my Bible and read it, I'm reading the Word of God accurately conveyed to us through the centuries. Of course, the other part of that question is that those of us who believe in God believe that he has also providentially protected this word and preserved it in order that we can have the information that he wants us to have. Finally, in conclusion, let me give you a a little explanation that was originally made by Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley made an argument that works on the process of elimination. He said the Bible must be the product of good men or angels, or it was the product of bad men or devils, or it was from God. Now, if you think about it, those are really the only three options available, right? The Bible is either, was either made by good men or angels, bad men or devils, or God. And then by, pro, uh, by process of elimination, he said it can't be, that the Bible was produced by good men or angels. He said, quote, "...it could not be the invention of good men or angels, for they neither would or could make a book and tell lies all the time they were writing, saying, Thus saith the Lord, when it was in fact their own invention." You you, you follow him there? In other words, he he has eliminated this possibility. He said "It, it could not be that the Bible was written by these good men because good men wouldn't tell a lie and say... God says this when, in fact, it was really just them saying it. They wouldn't be good men if they were doing that, right? So eliminate that possibility the Bible wasn't written by good men or angels. Then he says it neither could have been written by bad men or devils. He says it, would, it, it could not be the invention of bad men or devils, for they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their souls to hell for all eternity. He said bad men or devils wouldn't write a book... That encourage people to you know live righteous lives and condemn those who don't. Bad and devils wouldn't write a book like that. And so you eliminate that possibility. And then Wesley said, Therefore I draw this conclusion that the Bible must be given by divine inspiration. Pretty good argument, don't you think? That by process of elimination we can come to the conclusion that the Bible really is the inspired Word of God. And so our lesson tonight has been intended to... <laughs> to build our confidence in the Scriptures and help us to believe absolutely and without doubt that the, that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And and I hope that, that we have uh, said something that will help and encourage you along those lines. Appreciate your attention to what we've had to say tonight.
0: Isn't the Bible an amazing book? And within the Bible and all that evidence that surrounds the Bible demonstrates that we really can believe that it's from God and we really can trust it. I hope this lesson was beneficial to you and helped increase your faith and your conviction in the Bible as God's Word. If you have any questions about the Bible, how to study the Bible or how to follow the Bible, or maybe you just have some questions about the Franklin Church of Christ, please give us a call at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website at www.FranklinChurchOfChrist.com Also, if somebody gave you this lesson, let me encourage you to come to our website. Again, that's FranklinChurchOfChrist.com You can download the other four lessons in this series Plus, numerous other sermons and lessons that we have on that website for you. We have audio format and outline format that you can download and listen to, or download and read and study. You can study them yourselves, distribute them to others. Whatever you believe will help glorify God and benefit and strengthen His children. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.